Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Why do so many conservative Christians continue to support Donald Trump despite his many overt moral failings? Why do many Americans advocate so vehemently for xenophobic policies such as a border war with Mexico? Why do so many Americans seem so unwilling to acknowledge the injustices that ethnic and racial minorities experience in the United States? Why do a sizable proportion of Americans continue to oppose women's equality in the workplace and in the home? Andrew Whitehead and Samuel L. Perry seek to answer these questions in Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, published by Oxford University Press in 2020, which explores the phenomenon explores the phenomenon of Christian nationalism, the belief that the United States is and should be a Christian nation. The first comprehensive empirical analysis of Christian nationalism in the United States, Taking America Back for God, illustrates the influence of Christian nationalism on today's most contentious social and political issues. Andrew Whitehead is an associate professor of sociology at Clemson University and assistant director of the Association of Religion Data Archives. I'm so glad uh, his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Terrific. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Yeah. So uh, my colleague, Sam Perry, and I, we, um, you know, had met through our subfield sociology of religion a number of years ago, and we started working together. Um, And then at one point, I was really interested in this idea of, you know, this view of the U.S. as a Christian nation um, or explicitly Christian. You know, does that influence how Americans see their social worlds, you know, see different political issues? Um, And we looked at a, a you know, we wrote one paper together and looked at just one topic, um, probably back in 2013 or 2014, and um, how we measured Christian nationalism then. It was it was a very strong predictor of of how Americans viewed same sex unions, um, which was before you know the 2015 Obervel and Hodges decision. And so, um, you know, we wrote that paper and then we thought, well, you know, I wonder if this, um, you know, what we call cultural framework of Christian nationalism, I wonder if it, you know, affects Americans' views towards other issues. So we started looking at racial attitudes and it was really strong there. And we started writing a series of papers, looking at all these kind of hot button social issues. And sure enough, you know, how Americans conceptualized the Christian heritage of the United States, whether they rejected it or accepted it and embraced it, um, was a really powerful predictor of their attitudes towards you know all these different things. Um, and so we got to the point after I don't know five or six papers where you know we thought you know this probably needs to be a book where we can kind of put it all together in one spot and write it for a, a much wider audience. Since you know with journals and their paywalls, it's difficult to reach a wide audience. Um, because we saw it was so influential. Um, and, and so we gathered some new data and, and wrote the book, um, you know, in 2017, you know, I kind of started it and then same came on and we, you know, finished it kind of during the Trump presidency, but it was after the 2016 election when we got some new data that we really saw, um, how powerful it was in explaining Trump, 
winning in 2016 and Americans continuing to support him. And, and so that was where it really kind of took hold of our imaginations. And then too, as our work kind of gained, um, you know, some presence in the public sphere, people started really realizing too, that it isn't even about, you know, somebody's religious or their politics, but, um, you know, in the overlap of those, how they think their religion or Christianity what role it should play in our, our social and, and civil society, that is something different and, and really powerful. And, and so that's kind of a bit of the journey, I think, for us professionally that, that brought us to write this book. Right, right. And so when you use the term Christian nationalism, what exactly are, are you referring to? Yeah, so we define Christian nationalism as a cultural framework, which we basically mean that it isn't just about um, you know a certain expression of historic Christian faith um, or even just a political party, but um, this cultural framework takes Christianity and, and basically adds on a number of other cultural assumptions and, and beliefs. And so it really is about wanting to see a particular type of Christianity used with American civic identity. So the national identity, our public policies, our sacred symbols, um, for those that embrace Christian nationalism, they would want all those things to basically represent their view of their social worlds. And what we find is that within this cultural framework come assumptions of white supremacy um, and uh, patriarchy and militarism and acceptance of violence and, and all these other parts. And so it really is about a culture and a cultural viewpoint rather than any sort of um, you know religious faith on its own. It really wants to see a particular social world um, embodied in, in kind of their views of, of how it should uh, lay out. Right. And in the book, you talk about four orientations of or towards Christian nationalism, the rejectors, resistors, accommodators, and ambassadors. What do each of those uh, um, orientations, um, what, what, you know, how, how do they operate exactly? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So when we measure Christian nationalism, um, we ask respondents and all across the U.S. six different questions that, that have to do with how they think Christianity should um, reflect or be reflected in, in the public sphere. So we might ask, you know, should the federal government declare the U.S. a Christian nation? Should it advocate Christian values? Um, is the U.S. Um, part of God's plan for the world? And to the degree that they strongly agree or down the line dis strongly disagree with those questions, we're able to assign a point value to each answer and then add those together to create a scale that ranges from zero to 24. Um, and so somebody that strongly agrees with all of our questions about Christianity should be really privileged in the public sphere would score a 24. And then somebody who strongly disagrees with all of those would be a zero on that scale. And what we find is that Americans are spread all across this um, spectrum with many Americans in the middle. So it really does, if you can imagine a bell curve in your mind, it really does look like that and follow that with most Americans somewhere in the middle. And so this is important because, you know, talking about Christian nationalism, it isn't an either or binary, right? Somebody is a Christian nationalist or they're not. What we find is that for many Americans, you know, there are, there are some that strongly embrace it. We might call them Christian nationalists, but most Americans might be, you know, somewhat uh, have some of an affinity towards that idea. Others might kind of resist it or reject it. And so we see Americans spread all across this scale. So what we did in the book 
to kind of ease talking about Christian nationalism and its importance in American society um, is to, you know, look at four different orientations and they kind of align with different parts of that scale. So if, if we're looking at that scale in the, um, you know, the very upper reaches of that scale, we call those Americans ambassadors. So they're the ones that strongly embrace Christian nationalism. They see it as an important and central part of, of America, American identity, um, that we are a Christian nation, we should be and should continue to be, um, and that Christianity should be privileged above um, all other faiths, all other political persuasions. Um, they're the ambassadors. Then we have, if you move down the scale, accommodators. And so they range from the very middle of the scale up to about a quarter of the way on that upper end. Um, and we call these Americans accommodators. So they're favorably disposed towards Christianity. They think Christianity plays a positive role in the United States, should have a say in our public policies, but not to the point that it overshadows or crowds out any other religious expression or non-religious expression. So they tend to be a little bit more ecumenical and, and open towards everybody being able to live and operate in the U.S. But, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, if we're going to say a prayer on a Friday night before a football game in the South, right, it's going to be a Christian prayer in their book. So those we call accommodators. Now, once we move kind of to the lower half of the scale, so from the middle, the mean, um, down to a you know quarter way through the lower half of the scale, we call these Americans resistors, and so resistors are those that are, they're kind of a mirror image of accommodators actually, where they're kind of undecided, um, but they lean towards opposition of any sort of privileging of Christianity um, in the United States civil society. So so they're resistant to this idea that you know we should be distinctively Christian. Um, but, you know, they might see and, and want, you know, there to be some openness with how Christianity um, is expressed, but it makes them uneasy. Now we have at the very lower end of the scale are rejectors. And so these are Americans that completely reject and repudiate any notion that America is a Christian nation or should be a Christian nation, that it should be elevated in any way, that our public policies or sacred symbols should have any sort of Christian influence or iconography, anything like that. So they reject those notions and they are strongly opposed um, to this idea of the U.S. as a Christian nation or that it should be a Christian nation. Now, when we look um, at the sizes of these groups, um, rejectors, uh, they are, um, you know, about 23, 24, 25%, not quite a quarter, just over 20% of the population. Um, resistors are a, a slightly larger. They they're up, you know, getting close to about twenty five percent of the population as a whole. So taken together, resistors and rejectors, they're about a little under half the population. So when we look um, at accommodators and ambassadors, we see that accommodators are actually the largest group. Um, they're just about a third of Americans are accommodators. So you can see that for most Americans, they're just open to Christianity playing a big role. Um, and then ambassadors are right at 20% of the U.S. population. So taken together, accommodators and ambassadors make up half, um, over half the U.S. population. So um, it isn't as though half of Americans are, you know, really strong and vehement Christian nationalists. I wouldn't say that. But half the population is favorably disposed towards Christianity playing a key role, at least, at the very least playing an important role in public life, um, and then moving up from there. So those are the four groups, kind of how we understand them and, 
and how they help us see um, the way that Americans approach this idea of Christian nationalism. That was a fantastic description. <laughs> Thank you for that. That really helps kind of uh, uh, give us a lay of the land. And we're going to talk more about um, you know these categories and how they feel about uh, various um, topics. But before we get into that, I'm I'm curious just about the terminology or the words that you that were chosen, um, especially for for things like the accommodators and and um, even more so ambassadors. I thought that that was a really interesting um, term to describe the you know the very you know, strongly um, kind of Christian nationalists in America. One could think of uh, many other terms that might seem, um, you know, not as, um, uh, uh, well, not as, I, I don't know, respectful, if that's the right term, but but just, you know, kind of a, a give a, a very different feel. I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about your, the kind of thought process in determining uh, what would be the names for these four categories. Yeah, well, some of it, you know, is kind of more of the artistic side. So, you know, I we kind of liked the alliteration of rejectors and resistors, two R's, and then accommodators and ambassadors, you know, two A's. So it's easy to remember. Um, when I presented some of this work, my um, mother-in-law, who would be found on the upper reaches of the Christian nationalism scale, but um, is still always supportive of, of our work. Um, you know, she remembered the four names. And so I thought, well, that is, you know, that's a really good sign that this is a person that is very far afield of any sort of academic engagement, but those names stuck with her. And so some of it was, was kind of artistic in that sense. Um, you know, of the, of the four names, the one that gave us the most trouble that we struggle with the most in trying to figure out what to call it was ambassadors. Um, because for some people, ambassador has a really uh, positive connotation. You know, somebody that is interested in outreach and finding common ground. And, you know, we, we appoint ambassadors to go to different countries. And so I, <laughs> I totally get that. We thought through that. Um, that was that was true, um, but you know there were there were aspects of the word ambassador too where um, we we felt like this idea that they're constantly and consistently you know trying to push a particular agenda, um, and and the other words that we thought of or tried to use um, you know never truly captured um, that group really in my view any better than ambassadors, and so in that sense we you know we stuck with it. Um, because it, it, you know, kind of aligned with and, and worked with accommodators. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a perfect name. You know, we thought, do we just call that group Christian nationalists there at the top? But in that sense, too, I think, you know, that group is, a, there's a little bit too much variation, even within that group, to say that those are all Christian nationalists. And then at the end of the day, what we're really interested in is is not so much labeling these groups, because the names are really technically just heuristic devices. Like there's no underlying statistical methodology that, you know, said there are four groups, um, even though we find there are differences between all the groups and a lot of our, um, you know, work kind of at the back of the book for those that <laughs> enjoy statistical modeling. Um, but really just descriptive to help us make sense of this scale. And, and really what we're writing the book about is Christian nationalism, not a particular group, but but really the fact that even if you reject it, that tells us a lot about you. So we don't just want to study those that embrace it, but those that reject it or maybe resist it and don't reject it wholeheartedly, there are interesting differences even between those groups. And so in that sense, um, it really is kind of the underlying variation across that whole 
um, continuum that is to us most interesting and, and most defensible. And then the names of the groups kind of help as we talk about them with others. So um, I guess that would be my <laughs> my defense. If if not perfect, that's kind of where we ended up. I, I don't think any defense is necessary. I I, I think it's it, it's it's just a really interesting thing how you know scholars end up naming things. Um, but but it does lead to another uh, kind of a, a broader question about your approach as a scholar to this topic. And I think uh, again, the names are kind of a window onto this 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 issue which is that you're writing uh about christian nationalism and, and in the era of trump and and all of the um the the the, the tragedies and 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 uh, uh trauma you know that is going on um in the country around this time um and and so uh it's easy let's say for someone to to take a kind of a harsh uh, uh attitude towards these people that uh, they may disagree with and on very, very profound and basic things about, you know, human rights, racial justice and equality and uh, gender equality and, you know, all these other things. Um, and, and at the same time, and you mentioned your, your mother-in-law, not to, to, to pick on her, but I think it's really interesting. No, really, because to be honest, I had a similar situation as um, um, someone who writes about the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. And I, you know, I wrote a book about it, and uh, the book was primarily about people who leave it. But I also, in the process, ended up you know, spending a lot of time describing the community itself. And I really struggled for, for many years with how to both describe it as accurately as possible without it feeling like my descriptions themselves were a kind of attack on the community. And I feel uh, like your book, actually one of the many merits of your book is that it's very explicit. It's very clear and, and, and forthright about, you know, what Christian nationalists believe, which many, many Americans, as well as others, would find, you know, abhorrent. Um, but at the same time, it seems to be sort of dispassionate in a way. And, and I'm wondering if you could, you could talk about, um, you know, how you achieved that or how you thought about this, this kind of balancing act. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And and two, I yeah, just kind of the solidarity of the struggle as academics trying to faithfully tell the truth about something that you're looking at and and the methodologies that, you know, different different academics take to to answer these questions. Um, but then also trying to be, you know, respectful of of people and their stories and their viewpoints, even though we may disagree. And so we know too, um, you know, nobody is truly, um, you know, on the outside. We're all a part of these social worlds that we're um, interested in examining, and so we're never truly objective um, social observers. And and so I think a part of what some might say was, you know, could be a, a weakness, but for us, I hope, you know, it turned out to be a strength. It, you know, at least for me, I'll speak for myself. You know, coming from um, you know, an area of the country in the United States and and from a faith tradition that was kind of steeped in Christian nationalism. So growing up with that and and being around these people and and two, it was kind of the unquestioned reality, um, kind of allowed me, you know, to to know these people and and to not only know kind of what they think and believe, but also to know their humanity, you know, even if there are very um 
you know, real disagreements that I have with how they see the world or political, you know, desires or whatever else um, to still see their humanity, which sometimes when you're too far removed, that can be a difficult thing. Um, and so when we were writing the book, um, and for me, having come from and have a history with faith traditions that kind of embrace Christian nationalism, I also saw that, you know, we can't um, misrepresent or or think that the faith tradition itself is and only is Christian nationalism. Um, there are people and, and institutions and organizations within, let's say, conservative Christianity or evangelical Protestantism that resist and reject Christian nationalism. And so that kind of helps too, that they aren't one and the same. And then finally, I think for me, just wanting to tell the truth and and kind of throw the mirror up and say, this is kind of where we're at. Um, whether we like it or not, this is what, you know, is being associated with Christian nationalism and, and this faith tradition. Um, and if, you know, those that hold this faith tradition and, and, and maybe believe the Bible <laughs> and, and the fact that, you know, in some expressions of Christianity, you know, loving others and, and enemies and refugees and immigrants and all these things that some expressions of Christianity say, and then Christian nationalism is something really diametrically opposed to those, um, you know, trying to think through, well, what, what does that mean? What are the implications of those? And so I think those parts were, were helpful in, in telling the truth about this, um, but also recognizing that if we want to push um, towards a, a more just society for everybody, um, you know, only demonizing them uh, or saying that they're irredeemably, you know, lost. I don't, I don't think that's going to help. Now, there's a lot that <laughs> there's a lot of other hurdles in the way. So I don't want to have rose, you know, tinted glasses about it. Um, but, um, you know, one example is, is with the January 6th insurrection, that was a moment where it's sad it got to that point. Um, but that was a moment where people that probably might've been more inclined to ignore us, that, Hey, this is Christian nationalism is a huge issue. Um, then they were more willing to hear us. Um, and so it's sad it got to where we had an attack on the Capitol and people died. Um, but it does mean now that there are conversations that are happening um, and hopefully will continue to happen. And so, yeah, I, I, I hope that that continues to be a part of it um, and that we're equipping people to think through the implications and disentangle whether, you know, it's Christianity or in other nations, other religions get conscripted into a nationalistic impulse. And so it isn't just Christianity, but it's, it's an issue that religious people, you know, whatever, their religious tradition have to contend with. And so, yeah, I think those conversations are key to have a, a pluralistic democratic society where all can flourish and nobody is, you know, privileged, um, you know, over and above everybody else. So. Right. Absolutely. Um, so um, uh, speaking of the humanity of the the people you're analyzing, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the, the demographics of mm. um uh, of these categories, how do uh, these four the the four categories of the Christian nationalist nationalism? Um, how do they relate to race and gender and mm. education? Um, and uh, and uh, um, well, let's let's start with that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that was a really interesting part um, of the book to work on, and something that we were really fascinated with was 
you know, these four groups, um, are they the same, you know, sociodemographically? What are those differences? And most people are really interested in this as well. So some kind of quick demographic hit points. Um, you know, when we talk about age, um, you can, it's almost, uh, you know, kind of a linear relationship that as you move up the scale from rejectors to ambassadors, you know, stronger embrace, um, they tend to get older and older. So the average age of ambassadors in our sample, um, one of the samples that we use in data sets we use is 54 years. Um, and rejectors are almost a decade younger on average, 43 years old. That's massive. I mean, a year or two difference is, is a really big deal. And so um, that, that is big. So with this data, we see that ambassadors are a lot older. Um, if we're looking at gender breakdowns, um, ambassadors tend to be slightly more made up of slightly more women than men. Um, and if we're looking at race, um, wait, sorry, sorry, just one with, second. You, yeah. Sorry, just to, to, to go over that. You said that in terms of the gender ambassadors tend mm -hmm. to be more female than there's more. Yeah. 55% uh, yeah, of ambassadors are women. Um, and 45% are men, which, yeah, you're probably like, well, that's really interesting because ambassadors tend to be more patriarchal. And so that's a really fascinating part, you know, similar to religion, how in, in some religion or religious traditions, women are at um, a disadvantage structurally and, and with access to power, but yet more women are, you know, found in those religions. And so it's this interesting relationship. We find the same with Christian nationalism. Um, if we're talking about race, um, Ambassadors tend to be slightly more white, about 70% are white, um, but 11% are black, um, a little over 11% are Hispanic in our sample. And so it isn't as though it's just white people embracing it. Um, if we look at the overall sample, it's about equally spread across those um, racial and ethnic categories. Now, what we're finding in more recent research, we don't pull this thread as much in the book, um, but that as black Americans embrace Christian nationalism, it works differently in that group than it does in white um, America. Um, most likely because of their very different historical experiences in the U S I mean, saying it's a Christian nation and you being white is very different than, you know, let's say a Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King Jr. Saying that this is a Christian nation and should thus treat everybody equally and with dignity, like they say the gospels or Jesus would. So, um, very different um, relationships there um, overall. And then as we look at uh, education or income, um, it's it's somewhat what you might predict where um, more education, you tend to be more likely to be a rejector or a resistor um, and with income, um, slightly the same as well, those things. So with social class, you tend to not be as found on the, the highest ends of ambassadors. Um, uh, but more likely to be accommodators or resistors or rejectors. So that's some of the kind of socio-demographics that we see associated with each of these groups. Right, right. And in terms of the political affiliation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how does that correlate with these four categories? Yeah, great question. So it is somewhat of as you would expect. So if you're an ambassador, um, you know, you're, you're pretty likely to be um, a Republican. Um, so when we're looking just at political party, a little over half of ambassadors are Republicans, um, which, you know, 55% are Republicans. That's a lot. It's true. But that's 45% that aren't. 
Um, you know, 25% of those are independents, a little over 20% are Democrats. And so it isn't just, again, striking down, you know, the lines of political party, but there, there's something about Christian nationalism that, again, cuts across religious tradition, cuts across political party that you're going to find people on either end of the political spectrum um, embracing Christian nationalism. And it's going to push them in similar directions to where, um, you know, maybe we'll talk more about this in a bit, but if if you have two, a Republican and a Democrat that are ambassadors, they're going to look more similar than a Republican who's an ambassador and a Republican that's a rejector of Christian nationalism. So it's it's a very, Christian nationalism is very powerful even within these kind of standard um, socio-demographic groups that we used to understand the social world. We really too, in addition to politics, in addition to private religion, we need to be thinking about people's views towards public expressions of religion like Christian nationalism. Right. And in terms of the uh, um, uh, the state of residence, where do mm. the, the, the different categories end up residing in the country? Yeah. So we find that, um, you know, they're found, all four groups are found in all kind of four, you know, the main census regions. Um, you're most likely to find ambassadors you know, in the South um, and Midwest to an extent. Um, so many of them are found in those areas. Um, but uh, you're going to find, you know, even in the Northeast and, and the West, you're going to find ambassadors just a little bit smaller numbers. Um, and then what's fascinating too is, you know, in our, um, in our models where we're trying to predict a particular attitude towards, you know, any type of social issue you can think of, you know, we'll account for, you know, where people are from, what region of the country. We'll add that in our models. We'll hold that constant. And what we find is that even if they're in the South or the Northeast or the West, if they're an ambassador, you know, that is going to tell us a lot about how they might view a particular political or social issue. Um, and so we see, yeah, these groups are spread all across the U.S., yeah, I think it's. I I remember when uh, reading your book, being absolutely fascinated at how uh, um, sort of uh, complex and varied these mm. four categories were, and that it wasn't a, a, a nice, neat, you know, uh, divide between these different groups. Mm. And, uh, mm. Oh, of course, the women are not going to be in. Uh, and in the um, you know ambassador category, as you said, oh well, you know uh, uh, the Christian nationalists are uh, very patriarchal. Women, of course, would oppose that out of their own understanding of their self-interest. Well, not exactly. You know, yeah. uh, often doesn't work out that way. And even having, as you said, uh, black and Latino um, uh, members uh, who are part of um, you know ambassadors or accommodators really uh, helps kind of um, explode the neat narrative that mm. uh, I think a lot of people have of who would be uh, in the Christian nationalist camp. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that was the fun part too, is trying to, you know, explore um, and make that case that, you know, with understanding Christian nationalism, um, it really isn't as though you can say, well, if we account for gender or politics or, you know, their view of the Bible, then we're, that's going to tell us everything we need to know. Um, we're, we were excited to be able to kind of pull those threads and show, no, you know, there are relationships here, but it, it's something even outside of these kind of common measures of, of religion or how we understand religion operating 
um, or politics operating in our social worlds. Right. Now, speaking of the complexity of these characters, these categories, um, the, the, the name itself, Christian nationalism would certainly, uh, 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 imply or people would assume that whoever ranks very high on a scale of Christian nationalism is personally very devout. Uh, mm. And you already sort of hinted at this. Um, just how closely related is uh, Christian nationalism to personal uh, Christian piety? Yeah, that's a great question. So we find that it is um, to an extent. Um, so when we look at ambassadors, they are more likely to attend church at higher rates. They're more likely to to hold their Bible, you know, read the Bible literally, as they would say, or you know, in high regard, to take it very seriously, um, to pray a lot, to believe in God. Um, and but what we find though is that even within this group, um, there are a number of ambassadors um, who are not kind of traditionally religious. Um, you know, they mostly are, but there's some that attend church just once or twice a year um, or unaffiliated um, or, you know, maybe don't believe, um, you know, that the Bible is is only literal and that's the only way you can read it. Um, and what we also find too, along with that is those at the lower ends of the spectrum of Christian nationalism. So the rejectors and resistors, um, a number of them uh, you know, attend church at, at pretty high rates, you know, several times a month um, for resistors, you know, and a good number of them attend church quite a bit or are affiliated with um, evangelical Protestantism or pray um, with some frequency. Um, and so we find that, again, the personal piety is not kind of a one-to-one um, relationship with Christian nationalism, but that, yes, Christian nationalists tend to be pretty religious, but there are some that really aren't that religious and they still want to see Christianity privileged. And we have rejectors who maybe read their Bible every day, pray every day, and are evangelical Protestants, but they just do not think that Christianity should be privileged. And so those groups are small in those, you know, counter kind of counterexample groups. They're not, they're not the majority at all, uh, but they do exist. And so there's something different happening when we're talking about personal religiosity and and then this public expression of religion in Christian nationalism. And that's something too, throughout the book in our different chapters, we kind of highlight that once you account for Christian nationalism, personal religious piety tends to operate differently. Um, and so that's a key point too, that, you know, with the national news media or whoever else, we can't just say, oh, it's religious Americans that want X, but really it's this cultural framework of Christian nationalism that's really doing heavy lifting on some of those things. Right. And thinking about these uh, four categories, how stable, and the numbers of people in uh, you know, each of them, how stable are those numbers over, say, the past decade? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and something that we're really interested in and uh, obviously has implications for what what's next. Um, so we find that with Christian nationalism, there's a number of, of interesting trends here. One is that, um, you know, the, the degree to which Americans might see Christianity as, as key and central to American identity, to be a true American, like one must be Christian, that waxes and wanes um, over time, depending on different historical events. So post 9-11, we find there was a significant increase in the number of Americans that said, you know, you really need to be a Christian to be a true American. Um, so from 96 to 2004, it was, it was a dramatic and statistically significant increase. 
But then by 2014, so a decade after that, it actually went down. The number of Americans that said it went down below 1996 levels. So there's something happening with historical moments where religion kind of becomes a part of how Americans see American identity, especially Christianity. So one point is, you know, with different historical moments, you're going to see wax and wane. Now, what we saw from 2007 to 2017 when we gathered data um, is that the relative size of these groups to each other stayed pretty similar. Um, But we found that rejectors and resistors increased um, a number, a couple percentage points, but statistically significant. So it wasn't by chance. Um, And ambassadors actually decreased by about 4%. And again, not a chance decrease, but was a real one. Uh, accommodators, they were essentially the same size over that decade. So we do see some movement um, from you know those upper that upper half down to the lower half. Um, so that movement was was real. Now what's interesting is that um, you know what's going to happen in the future. So is this a demographic replacement story where ambassadors are older and they're going to die off and then they don't get replaced and so they shrink? Or as people age, are they more likely to start becoming ambassadors to where there's going to be a replacement there to where there, you know, it won't shrink as much. So that has yet to be seen. We still need to gather data over the next decade, really, to be able to start to see some of these trends. But what we would argue, too, is that um, the way that Christian nationalism works with creating these strong boundaries around us and them, and that it is about protecting privilege and power of, of this group, but it tends to be white, natural-born citizens that are kind of conservatively, politically and conservatively um, Christian, uh, as even if they shrink, this identity to them will only become more salient. They'll only begin to see themselves even more as the defenders of this Christian nation. And so even if there is some you know, contraction in the size of this group, I think the importance of how they see themselves as Christian nationalists or as the defenders of the Christian faith in the U.S. and this identity um, becomes even more important. And we know that, you know, older Americans tend to vote more. And so they're going to punch above their weight. They have already and they'll continue to do so um, in the elections. So they may only make up 20 percent of the population, but 25, 26 percent of the electorate. So there's a number of kind of moving parts here that really put that demographic um, future um, into you know different kind of understandings of, of what it might mean for us um, as a culture. Right, right. And uh, thinking of Christian nationalism, how does it influence people's political attitudes, specifically on sort of uh, hot button political questions? Yeah. So when we're looking at let's say Trump support, um, you know, in the last number of years, and and even though you know there's rumblings he may run again, you know, in 2024, who knows? Um, but we know that there are a number of stories you see every single day in national newspapers of, of, is this Trump's party, right? Has the Republican party become Trump's party? So Trump's support is still going to be a key aspect of understanding, especially the right, but I think politics in the U.S. And so we find that Christian nationalism is strongly associated with support for Trump because um, as some historians have made the case and shown us too, that this idea of a Christian nation of kind of this masculine militant ideal of you know, going out and taking what's ours and not apologizing and, and all of these things are kind of a key aspect. And to him or to these people, Trump was kind of this perfect representation of it. And and that is devoid of any sort of individual or personal 
um, kind of idea of, of being personally religious or pious. They don't really care about that. What they want is somebody who will defend their rights in the public sphere. And Trump, they saw, was that person. And he was happy to use the political and religious rhetoric um, that other Republican presidents have used in the past. Um, but really for him, he didn't have to put on any sort of show that, hey, I'm an evangelical or I'm religious, but just to use the rhetoric. And we see that it was it was so um, important and it was so useful and it worked. I mean, he was able to bring those people into his fold and they supported him in 2016 and they doubled down and even grew a little bit in size in 2020. Um, and so as we look at politics in the U.S., um, affiliation with that religious right or the political right, you know, is key with Christian nationalism. Um, and then a number of, you know, other hot button issues where we were talking about um, within the news today, you know, transgender rights and bills. Um, we see that Christian nationalism is really focused on this idea of a particularly ordered social order, right? So it's men, you know, leading women and it's, you know, heterosexual relationships are key we have to maintain that order for a stable society. And so whether it's, you know, gay marriage or transgender rights and civil rights, they tend to oppose those. Um, as we look at voting bills, um, there's a, you know, raft of voting restriction laws being passed. We're gathering data now. Uh, my colleague Sam Perry is gathering data where he's showing Christian nationalism is strongly associated with a desire to restrict voting rights, to believe that voter suppression isn't a real thing. That you know, we need to limit the vote to to the people that really truly know, right? Kind of in air quotes, <laughs> um, really truly know what it means to be an American. And so, really, that's about minorities being excluded um, when it comes down to it. And so, um, as you look at police violence towards minorities, um, with the Derek Chauvin trial and guilty, um, you know, him being found guilty, which you know, up until the last moment, people weren't even sure if a video of him kneeling on the neck of George Floyd was going to be enough to convict him, which tells us something about our society. And we see when we ask Americans about police violence towards African-Americans, um, Christian nationalism is, is associated with being much more likely to say that, you know, there's no excess violence towards black Americans, um, that in some ways they may deserve more of the violence because they're inherently more violent. So really kind of they're really racist views towards black Americans. So again, this orientation towards creating boundaries around what it means to be a true American and being white. So across a number of those issues, we see that Christian nationalism is, is a key explanatory variable in understanding why Americans who might be really religious would then also be much more likely to endorse violence towards another group or, or whatever else. So um, it hits on a number of those, and we kind of outline a number of those throughout the book as well. Right. And, and uh, you mentioned in the book about uh, um, the fact that, that uh, people who score high on uh, Christian nationalism are very much opposed to uh, um, abortion rights, as well as uh, kind of Muslims in general. And um, although obviously both of those things are, are very disturbing, it seems to me that within a kind of conservative Christian uh, mindset, it's possible to understand why they would feel that way. But one thing that that jumped out at me is you also talk about gun rights and how people that score high on Christian nationalism are also very much in favor of gun rights. And I wondered if if uh, 
if, if there was something about that as well, where there was a kind of a clear connection between conservative, Christian, um, I don't know, ethics or, 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 you know, belief, understanding that would lead someone to be very supportive of, you know, individual you know, personal gun rights. Or if this was an example of a kind of general support for a certain political uh, uh, party or, or orientation that wasn't sort of directly connected to Christian beliefs or ideology. Yeah. Conservative no, Christian. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, you know, there on the surface, I think you could tend to say the latter. Well, it's just a part of this kind of overarching constellation of views and beliefs that they're just signed on with altogether. But as we started to research this and talk to Americans and then the leaders, right, religious and political leaders and how they talked, we saw that there really is a part of this idea of a Christian nation that is tied into this idea of bearing arms and and being willing and able, if necessary, to enact violence and with firearms if necessary. So they would say, you know, a number of different ways to explain this. Um, they Christian nationalists or Americans who embrace Christian nationalism are more likely to view um, the founding documents as inspired. And so the Second Amendment in their minds is God-ordained, like it was given by the Christian God that you should be able to bear arms against tyranny and, you know, all of those things to defend your liberty. And then, too, there's an underlying sense um, that violence is a part of the natural order of things. And the only way to defend the right is to be willing to engage in violence. Um, good, it's basically the, the, the fundamental kind of myth or idea of good guy violence, that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And so we need to be armed and ready. And so to defend this moral order of the United States, guns or taking away guns is, is not the issue. What we need to do in their minds, again, I'm speaking from their point of view, what needs to happen is a fundamental change to the moral fabric of the U.S. So we need to change hearts and minds to follow Jesus. And so if you're following Jesus, then you will enact good guy violence, right? You become a good guy and violence is a part of that. So it really is a part of that worldview um, and is a part of, too, I think, some of the teachings um, in those congregations, in those religious traditions where for them, um, you know, to be kind of blunt about it, Jesus came the first time to die, but he's going to come a second time to destroy. So they read Revelation in a very particular framework of a conquering, killing, you know, king in their mind and and very masculine and ready to enact violence. And so it really is a part of their, I mean, this religious and political kind of um, ideology and theology, a political theology, really violence is a part of that and guns are, are a key aspect of it. Wow. Wow. Um, uh, one thing that you talk about in the book is how Christian nationalism um, could be quite different uh, uh, compared to people's personal religious mm -hmm. practice, people who are personally religious in terms of their attitude towards immigrants. H how does that mm -hmm. uh, shake out? Yeah, that's a wonderful question and something too that throughout the book on a number of these issues we find over and over. So speaking of attitudes towards immigrants um, specifically, if if we were to, let's say, um, you know, ask Americans, you know, should should immigrants be allowed to come here? Are they good for the country? Those types of questions. And then if we were to account for their, you know, respondents, age, gender, race, all of those things, and then just 
look at, well, how often do they attend church, for instance? What we would find is that Americans that attend church more often are more likely to oppose immigration. They don't want immigrants to come here, right? So the story there becomes, well, I guess religious people are xenophobic, right? And it makes sense. That's what we see in the data. But what we found is that once you account for Christian nationalism, once we include that in our models alongside attendance and alongside those demographic variables, what we find is that Christian nationalism, that's what's strongly associated with xenophobia. Religious attendance, once we account for somebody's level of Christian nationalism, the more often they attend church, the more welcoming they are to immigrants, the less likely they are to be xenophobic. So what that tells us is that because people who embrace Christian nationalism attend church more often, those um, relationships get kind of muddled if we just look at religious attendance, right? We're seeing that, oh, the more religious people are, the more xenophobic they are. Well, what's really happening is those people tend to be more Christian nationalist. And once we account for that, you're left with people that are religious, but reject Christian nationalism. And those religious people are very welcoming. And so again, it isn't the religious attendance per se. It's this cultural framework around conservative Christianity. It's found mostly in those spaces, this Christian nationalism, that's what is making people xenophobic. And so again, just trying to provide a little bit more precision that it isn't just religiosity or religion, but that it's this desire to see Christianity privileged in the public sphere. That's what's associated with higher levels of xenophobia overall. Right. And given um, all that you talk about in the book in terms of the focus of Christian nationalists on uh, you know, the acquisition and the use of power mm-hmm. uh, for their you know, particular uh, religious uh, nationalist agenda, uh, is Christian nationalism a threat to American uh, democratic society? Yeah, I I think that it is. I think it's a pure um, and real threat. And and really, nothing can make this more clear than January 6th. Um, so Christian nationalism isn't the only story in what happened at the insurrection, but I think it is a key one. We really can't understand the insurrection without taking into account Christian nationalism alongside other things. So I would never say it's the only explanation. But the fact that we saw people there in their own words as they're recording themselves saying, we got to take this country back. We've got to do what's right. We can't stand here any longer and allow the globalists, the secularists, the communists to take over our Christian nation. You know, we have pastors, videos of pastors there saying, I may get fired as a pastor, but at some point I've got to defend this country and and its Christian heritage. And so um, to us, you know, that is as clear a story of why Christian nationalism is a threat to a pluralistic democratic society, because they're willing to not only believe the lie that a, you know, a democratically elected president, you know, should then be able to take office. Um, and they're saying that Trump, you know, had the election stolen from him. Um, but even if they thought that it, it, the election was, you know, fairly um, won by President Biden, which it was. But even if they held that true, in their minds, democracy itself would then be an, uh, in the way of, of keeping and maintaining, in their view, this Christian nation, which again is wrapped up with white supremacy and, and all of these other things. And so, yeah, to the, the, to the extent that, a, you know, democratic society or democratic um, 
you know, voting process gets in the way, they're willing to cast that aside and, and really embrace an authoritarian leader like Trump. I mean, before Trump even won the first time, he never said that he would respect the outcome. He said he'd have to see. And for <laughs> them, they're fine with that. There's a very authoritarian um, aspect to what they see is if they believe God has ordained a particular future for the U.S., then what is to stand in their way? Um, it legitimates any outcome in their minds as what should happen. And again, um, a democratic process shouldn't shouldn't hold that back. And so, yeah, in that sense, I think it's a pure threat to the the plural, a pluralistic democratic society. Given that that's the case, um, are there things that can be done to combat? this threat to American democracy? And if so, what, what are th- those kinds of things? Yeah, I think, you know, there's two things I would say. One is more short-term and one is long-term. The short-term is um, Americans that are interested in, in a, a democratic, pluralistic um, society should defend the right to vote for every American. And so these, these laws that are being passed, um, you know, voting restrictions and limiting really what becomes access for minorities to the voting process should be opposed in all different ways. Um, and if passed, then working towards um, getting the vote out in those communities and allowing, you know, everybody to have an equal say. I think that's the short term kind of, you know, in the ER, what do we focus on first? It's got to be that. I think in the long term, because this takes such a long time, we, we can't focus on it because the laws will be passed and, and things could get worse. Um, but in the long term, I think then it's a question of, especially within white Christian spaces, them wrestling with Christian nationalism and the Christian nationalism in their midst, because it is, it is most prevalent in those spaces. And so pastors and priests and religious leaders are going to have to have the tough conversations um, with with their congregants about um, the proper role of of patriotism versus nationalism and how Christians should interact with other religious faiths and within a democracy, those types of things. And they're going to lose people right out the doors. Um, but I think that wrestling has to happen long-term um, for, for them to disentangle again, a Christian faith from Christian nationalism. And that'll be very difficult. Um, in talking with one white pastor who'd been pastoring for a couple decades he said, you know, he personally was a rejector, but in how he pastored, he said he was essentially an accommodator where he's kind of allowing people that, you know, he would never bring it up, didn't want to rock the boat, but just kind of saying, you know, whatever they believed, kind of accommodating those views and saying, yeah, Christianity should play a role or, you know, maybe even be privileged, all those things. And he could see now how dangerous that is because it's when we make space, you know, for that, I think as a society, then the extremism can really pop up and, and become more mainstream, which I think in some ways it has. So short term, I think looking and, and supporting those organizations and people that are trying to defend the right to vote and then long term um, encouraging and equipping and trying to be, you know, help as many ways as possible, white Christians especially, to really wrestle with Christian nationalism within their congregations. I think those are the key points. Right. And, and, uh, speaking of the, the, the kind of conversations and the, the, the situation within, um, um, within Christian, uh, spaces, um, mm-hmm. what has been the impact of Christian nationalism 
on American Christianity itself. Mm. Has this been a positive development, not in term, morally, but just in terms of sort of demographically, in terms mm. of growing churches, in terms of the dynamics within churches? Mm. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And so I think in some ways, you know, like the last question, I'm speaking beyond my expertise in the data <laughs> a little bit. Um, but I think, yeah, when you see Christianity paired, or really any religion, but but in this instance, Christianity paired with power and privilege, I think in the short term, it pays what they could see as benefits, right? It's going to draw people in. They see it as part of their patriotic duty and and all those things kind of make you feel good. And, and I think it kind of draws them together. Um, but I think in the long term, it is a negative where they're um, kind of abdicating any sort of prophetic witness to the state, right? And so they have to baptize and, or they have to consecrate everything that happens as, yes, this is what God would want. And I think obviously that's untenable over time. And so I think there are theologians that have been saying and continue to say that, you know, while it might be easier to accommodate this, this kind of syncretism of nationalism and Christianity, um, in the long term, we're abdicating what they view in their minds, they're abdicating um, some of these parts of their faith that are key, that it's a global faith, that just because you're American doesn't make you more Christian or a better Christian. But I think for many Americans, that is kind of the assumption that to be American is to be Christian and to be Christian because God favors America then is is to be American. And so that I think is very dangerous. So yeah, I, in some ways, I think it probably did benefit a little bit, um, getting cozy to power. But in the long term, I think some of those, um, I guess you could say, uh, those things are coming home to roost now. Um, and there's some issues that they're seeing that, that have to be addressed. Right, right. All right. Well, last question. Yeah. Um, uh, just thinking beyond uh, the the book that we've been discussing, um, could you tell us a little bit about a new project that you're currently working on? Well, yeah. So, um, you know, for me, one one project I'm starting to work on is just thinking a little more deeply about some of the, um, you know, how to or ways to disentangle Christianity from Christian nationalism. So thinking through and, and working with some of those people and voices working in those spaces to how to really draw these two things apart, that there, that there are expressions of Christianity that oppose Christian nationalism. What does that look like? Um, my colleague, Sam Perry, I, I'm really happy to plug a book that He's writing with um, Phil Gorski and should be out, I believe, um, in early 2022. So they're f- finishing the book up now, but as books, you know, it's like six months after you finish it, it comes out, um, but on white Christian nationalism. And so um, it's kind of really pulling deeper into what we did in this book um, and looking at some new data where, you know, you're going to look at data about democracy and, and some of those things that I mentioned, even in this podcast so that book will be coming out. And so that'll be another wonderful resource um, to, you know, empirically grounded um, aspect in looking at what Christian nationalism is and especially white Christian nationalism here in the U.S. So those are two projects that um, we continue to look for. But Sam and I are pretty active on Twitter. And so that's probably the best way to find us and kind of keep up on um, different data sets that we are gathering and, and new findings and kind of keeping up with, uh, you know, obviously a very quick um, and evolving news cycle to, to keep a handle on what what's happening um, in the U.S. around Christian nationalism as a whole. Sure. And, and uh, for listeners who are interested, where could they find you on Twitter? 
Yeah. So Sam, his handle is uh, Soch of the Sacred. So S O C and then of the Sacred. And then my handle is um, the at sign for the Twitter and then the rest of my name minus the A. So N D R E W W H I T E H E A D. So it's almost like Andrew Whitehead, but the, the A at the beginning is replaced by the at. So that's where you can find both of us. Um, but yeah, happy to, to answer questions and interact with, with anybody interested in this stuff. Terrific, terrific. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.